as human beings. He loved us so much that he wanted to redeem us and create a bridge by which he could have a relationship with us. And the scriptures are the storybook of how that happened and how God brought uh, reconciliation of, of man back to himself through the bridge, his son, Jesus Christ. And so therefore, everything we do is out of love back to the Father. And back to Jesus. And so I'm going to actually have you now turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25, where we'll be working from this morning. I just want to reiterate a couple things from last week. That if in the end of the day, your love for Jesus might have been very intense in its beginning days. If you, if you know Jesus Christ and you'd say, yes, Jesus is indeed my Lord and Savior, you can point back to a, a season of time where maybe that love was so on fire. And, we, and you can, might even be able to point to a time where that fire was stoked because of the aroma of somebody else's life around you that, that you just saw, whatever's in them is what I want. And so you cling to it and, 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 and you sought after it and then you yourself fell in love with Jesus. But like many relationships, over time that love can dim. It can grow cold if you do not nurture that love relationship. And, and so last week we encouraged that, you know, part of what got us to the place of loving Jesus was the fact that we were around somebody that was so on fire in love with Jesus. And so I encourage you that if your love has grown dim, to draw near somebody who you know is just infatuated with Jesus. And additionally, we know that often a lot of people will... will Fall in love with Jesus because of a powerful testimony or story. And, and so we encourage you that maybe you need to rekindle your own story and remember the hopelessness you had before Jesus and draw the hope you have in Christ to, to again, appreciate the, the, the opportunity that we have in Jesus through the work of the cross. And then I encourage you to share that story with somebody close to you. Uh, to, again, share of the journey of, of the seeds that God has done in your life so that Jesus could be proclaimed. And so I hope that you did that where you shared with somebody near you, again, your story of how you fell in love with Jesus. Now, in this aspect of being in love with Jesus, he asked us then, to make disciples and, and to do so in, in a manner that, that goes to all the world. We know the Great Commission where when Jesus' last words to his disciples were, I want you to go into all the world making disciples, teaching them all I've taught you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this disciple-making aspect is something that we're all called to do, but here is the uniqueness in that challenge. Many of us here feel like I don't know enough to disciple someone. Now, over the years, we have, since especially in 2012, we have brought to you examples in Scripture where literally the day somebody gave their life to Christ, they became a disciple maker. The disciple Matthew, the morning of his decision for Christ, in that morning, he was sitting in his tax collector's booth, and what was he doing? He was robbing and stealing and lying to his fellow kinsmen. But yet, Jesus comes along the way and, and looks right at Matthew and says, come and follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. What did Matthew do? He stopped doing what he was doing, 
and he began to follow Jesus. And then it says that later, he then ends up having people at his house, other tax collectors. He gathers his friends to hang out with Jesus. Literally, Matthew's training was he got up in the middle of the day and started following Jesus. And at night, he invited everybody that was in his oikos, his friendship group, his relational world, and brought them to his own dinner table and just simply had Jesus share with them. He began disciple-making literally on that first day. So if Matthew, who can be a, a thief and a robber and a liar in the morning, be completely redeemed and changed in the midday and be able to host a meal and begin to disciple others by the end of the day, can we not be disciple-makers? Now I'm going to give you four aspects of a paradigm of disciple-making right off the bat before we get into the Scripture. And we're going to be uh, in there for quite a while in this, this sermon today. But I want to start off with this disciple-making paradigm. Now, disciple-making is not something that's exclusive to Christianity. It's a term in American culture where, yes, it pretty much exclusively gets used among Christians. But the idea of disciple-making is taking something that, that is a person, a leader, and an idea or a philosophy... And you're saying, that's the object of a direction I want to go. And then you begin to follow it. So that's what a disciple is. So you begin to follow a leader and an idea. And so that begins with this aspect in the disciple-making context of Jesus Christ. Begins with loving on someone. In this case, we love on Jesus. We love on Jesus because he is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the one who initiated this opportunity for us to have a relationship with the Father God. So we love on Jesus. He is the person that we're emulating. He is the person that is the object of our love. So that's the first step of a disciple-making paradigm is then loving on someone. And as a result, if you're making then a disciple, you are loving on someone in Jesus' name. So then your love then upon Jesus then begins to be upon someone else. So I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a disciple. Then I look at who's in my relational world that I have influence over, the biblical term being oikos, and I begin to then love on those in that circle, in that relational world, and then I, so I love on them. My love for Jesus becomes on display. So whatever I'm passionate about, whatever I, it matters most to me, if I'm truly investing in relationships around me, they will see what's most important to me is Jesus. And therefore, already, disciple-making has begun. If you love on Jesus, and then you are letting that love be affecting you in the way you love on other people, you have already begun to be a disciple-maker. And your love and passion for Jesus is on display because they're accessible to your life enough to see it. Then number three in the disciple-making paradigm is not only do you love Jesus, so therefore you love on somebody else, and then you can display your love and passion, but number three is you then invite them to participate with you in that journey. There are opportunities along the way where you can invite them. We do things here at the church that make it easy to invite others, like Sunday in the Park is a classic example. If you've been loving on Jesus and then therefore loving on someone else, and your love and passion for Jesus is on display, then the opportunity to invite them to things that matter a lot to you, that, that fires you up about Jesus, you will start inviting them to. Church 
event-like things or gatherings at your house or if, you know, in one case, I was invited when I was early on to go to a Petra concert. Now, some of you don't remember Petra or never heard of it, but that was a Christian rock band in their day, and I think they still exist, but, uh, but I was invited to that, and I saw, I saw stuff I didn't think was even possible within Christendom. I mean, I grew up in a church where it was the piano and the organ, and that was it. And to see electric guitars and drums, lights, and smoke being used to the glory of God, that seemed like an other world to me. And so when I was invited to go to that, I saw the passion of Jesus upon the hearts of people there, and that kindled a fire inside of me. And so opportunities like that where you can invite others that that have already begun to be exposed to your love and passion could then be interested enough that when you make an invite, they want to come with you. And then, if you've done those invitations, the fourth and final part is, is that if you've invited them to participate with you in your love journey with Jesus, then you can win over their heart. And as a result, a disciple is made. A disciple is made when you've won over their heart, and then you guide them to a place where then they begin out of that love journey of Jesus, that they fall in love with Jesus, and then you help them begin to love on the people around them. So that their passion and love for Jesus can be seen by others. And then they can, in turn, invite others to participate with them in their journey of loving Jesus. And then another disciple is made. You see, that's really disciple-making paradigm. That's what Jesus was doing. He walked so closely with 12 people that they got to see his passion on display. They fell in love with him, but they got to see how his love continued on. Jesus was never satisfied with just those that were right around him. He continued to love on others, inviting others into the fold, and inviting others to participate with them. And as they and their hearts were won over to love Jesus, he then pointed them to say, now let your love for me be on display with others that you love on. That's disciple making in its purest form. Now, maybe you think, I still don't think I can do that well. Well, I'm going to prove something to you, and this is where this brown bag comes into, into fruition here. All right, so if you here living in Lancaster County happen to see somebody wearing a, let's say, a Los Angeles Dodgers baseball cap. Yeah, I said that just for my executive pastor's sake. But, yeah, (laughs) go red, right? (laughs) Um, So anyway, if you see that, you immediately think they're not from around here. Well, what happens if you go out to that person and just say, oh, are you from California? And they go, no, I'm from, you know, Akron, you know, another, another part of the world. <laughs> and I'm talking about Akron, Pennsylvania, not Ohio. <laughs> well, you're immediately thinking, okay, there's got to be more to the story. You can't wear a Los Angeles Dodgers hat, be a Los Angeles Dodgers fan, not be from California, but be from Akron, unless there's a story, Right? There's usually something that connects them that they fell in love with that team being on a complete opposite coast. All right, so I shared last week that there are several loves in my life, and I, and I talked about how I love 
football, I love baseball, I love golf, but then when I talked about I love my children, the love got more intense, and when I said I love my wife, it gets even more intense, and then when I say I love Jesus, it's pinnacle, it's epic. Well, if you run into me and in this area, you'll discover specifically some passions and love within that. So, if I wear this, People around, I heard a boo, that is not nice. (laughs) If I wear this around the area, then people are immediately going to be like, he's not from around here, right? And and then if they ask me, you know, I'd say, yeah, um, I'm from Kansas, and they go, oh yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense, right? Then if I wear this, you know, clearly the people are going to be like, uh, <laughs> excuse me, uh, why is that not navy blue? Why, why are you wearing not Penn State but Kansas? And I, and I say, well, you know, I'm, I'm from Kansas. And they go, well, okay, that makes sense, right? Well, then I hold this up if I'm wearing this. And you, if you're an Eagles fan, you're rooting for them today. So this is the Denver Broncos, and if people say, you know, like, well, why are you wearing that? Are you not from around here? I'll be saying, well, I'm from Kansas. And they get really confused in that moment. Well, why don't you like the Chiefs? And I say, well, I lived halfway between Kansas City and Denver, and so we got both games. And so then you end up choosing. And since the Broncos were really good for most of my years growing up, I fell in love with the Broncos. And so the people say, okay, that makes sense. But then, you know, because I'm saying I was born in Kansas, I went to school in Kansas, I graduated from high school in Kansas, my grandparents live in Kansas, my cousins live in Kansas. It all makes sense. You can associate that with Kansas. But then my son goes to school, and he wore this past week one of these jerseys. It's orange, says the Denver Broncos. And they'll say, are you from around here? And he says, Yes, I am. Where were you born? Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Where have you lived? Central PA, his whole life. How in the world do you like the Denver Broncos? What would be his answer be? My dad, right? You following? What's upon the disciple's heart, whatever love or passion you have, will be passed on to those that you invite into your relationship. And so, my son's a baseball player. He has Kansas City Royals hats, and he has Kansas City Royals jerseys. People ask him, are you from around here? He says, yes, I am. Have you, all right, have you ever lived in Kansas? No, I have not. Why do you like the Royals? Because they're better than the Phillies. You thought I was going a different way. <laughs> no, but he would say, well, you know, my dad, <laughs> he really likes, you know, the Kansas City Royals, and he's from there. And guess what? He fell in love with the Royals second because he initially liked the Yankees when he was younger. My, my father's a Yankees fan because I, I, he grew up in the Mickey Mantle era, you know. And so, like, most of the known world liked the Yankees except for those that live near Philadelphia. So, 
you know, you had this, this love that for the Yankees when he was younger, but over time, whenever we'd drive out to Kansas to visit my family, I would take him to Kansas City Royals games, not Yankees games. And then growing up, we would go and see the Royals playing in Baltimore or when we saw the Royals play in Philadelphia. So he's getting a, a dose of invitation for me to go and see the team I love. And as the Yankees shed off some of the players he liked, his love for the Royals started intensifying, and then the Royals went to World Series back-to-back -back years. That helped a lot. And then he became a Royals fan, and now he's definitely diehard Royals. He is totally infatuated with it. And, it. and it really was about a journey, because initially I didn't win him over in his heart. He liked the Yankees like a lot of his friends did. But over time, I took him to Royals games. Over time, he got to see different stories going on about the Royals, and eventually he fell in love with the Royals. But this Kansas jersey probably matters more to me than anything as far as sports go. You see, when you live in Kansas, you either wear purple or you wear blue. Purple being Kansas State or, or blue being Kansas Jayhawks. And, and so when you grow up in a state where it's either purple or blue, it, there's something that's very much tied to your identity in that state for that reason. Purple is usually those who were more agriculturally driven or rural, whereas all the cities in Kansas were tended to be more about the Jayhawks. And so uh, whenever I fell in love with the Jayhawks living in rural Kansas, they thought I was a traitor. Because I was going for the city university, not the rural university. And, and, but yet, as I grew up, my father and my grandfather were passionate Jayhawks. They would always watch the games, and so I fell in love with the Jayhawks. And during the basketball season, when you're indoors, it's, you know, because it's winter, you, you watch a lot of it. My entire family loves the Kansas Jayhawks. And so when we were on vacation a few weeks ago in, in August, we got to go into Allen Fieldhouse for the first time. And my wife got tears. I, I think I fell in love with my wife all over again. Walking into Allen Fieldhouse, and she got tears. Like, this is beautiful. And then my son was just like, you hear this, oh, wow. You see, I have effectively discipled. <laughs> I have effectively discipled my entire family to love Kansas. We have gone to several, we have gone to Kansas basketball games almost every year because they usually play either in New York City or they'll play in Philadelphia or they'll play somewhere in the D.C. area and we'll go and watch them play and so on. And so, you know, you invite them to participate and eventually, you know, seeing it on TV, they see that it matters a lot to me. So they enjoy being with me and they enjoyed being with me doing the things I enjoyed. And as a result, they began to enjoy what I enjoy. All kidding aside, it was a realization to me as I was walking out of Allen Fieldhouse this summer and I realized that I really have discipled my family to liking that team. But a light bulb came off. That's really how it happens in causing one life who did not know Jesus moving to a life that knows Jesus and loves Jesus. If Jesus is really important upon your heart, where you love Jesus so passionately, then those that get near you and participate in life with you 
will be predisposed to loving what's, what you're loving and having passion for what you have passion for. And if Jesus is the object of your love and passion, then they too become passionate about Jesus. But too often, we just go about our walk with Jesus as a ritual. We go to church. That's what you do. We're Christians because that's what we are. But outside of that, you can't tell that there's passion or love. And so there often is a disconnect from one generation to another because somehow they were supposed to connect with this is what you do and this is who you are. But to do so without passion or love isn't going to be winsome. It's not going to cause their heart to say, I love what you love because what you love isn't that evident. You see, disciple-making isn't about what you do. It's not about who you are, although it is who you are and what you do, but it is about the love and the relationship and the passion that comes within it. At this point, I can say that my children love Jesus. And if my son stayed a Yankees fan, it'd be hard, but if he stayed a Yankees fan... I would be completely okay with it if I knew that he loved Jesus. Because that's the greatest love and passion of my life. What would be dangerous is if my son fell in love with all my teens, but he didn't fall in love with Jesus. That there wasn't anything about my life that said that that passion was greater than any sports team or sports identity. That would be the danger. So this disciple-making thing really is about relationships, isn't it? It's not about having all the theology lined up, although you need good theology. It's not about making sure that you hit certain thresholds of attendance at church, although I think that is very important as part as your growth as a believer. It bottom line comes down to, can people that operate around your life and, and near your life, can they see that the greatest passion of your life is Jesus. Because if you invite people to get near you, the whole effect of disciple making requires that your passion and your love for Jesus is what stands out. That's the deal breaker. That's what's going to make a difference in another person's life. Because if they see that, then the aroma of your life will draw them in. As Jesus said, as we looked last week where it says, where, where we're called to be that aroma of Christ. And as people are drawn in and they get near your heart, they don't see perfection. That's not what they're looking for. They're looking for something real. They're looking for a love that, that is what fills that hole that is built within us that God has made intentionally for him. So it's about love. It's not just about a set of rules or a, a particular life pattern. It really is about passion and love for Jesus. So now I want us to read how Jesus put this into context. In Matthew chapter 25, we're going to start reading in verse 31. These are Je this is Jesus speaking, and this is also a lengthy section of scripture where it's just Jesus speaking. And you can read for quite a few, <laughs> quite a few verses prior to this and quite a few verses after this where Jesus is speaking. 
He's giving basically his final thoughts and words over this last week of his life. So much was taught. And this would be part of that ending days of his life. And he's making sure they understand and get him. So in verse 31, he says this. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and, he'll, and the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and gave you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, needing clothes and clothing you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then, some, then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, and into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me something, nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will answer you, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or in needing of clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to the eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So in this, Jesus basically is giving them a means by how love for Jesus is great, greatest and on display. That the greatest way that we can love Jesus, because he's even saying, listen, there are people that are flocking together. Not all of them, not all of them are sheep. And sheep equating to those who are are children of God, those who have given their life to Jesus Christ, who are surrendering to his leadership, his lordship. So not everybody are sheep that are gathered together. Some of them are goats. And goats have a very different behavior. But yet, they will sometimes share the same field. They'll be in the same room. They might even be practicing some of the same things together. But there is a difference. And Jesus says, you will know the difference between those who are sheep and those who are goats based on the way they love. But not so much love that says, I love Jesus, but love because of Jesus, what they do towards others around them. So, 
he gives them this marking. He says, you know, you will know the sheep that are mine based on what's upon their heart. Because what's upon their heart is what's upon my heart. If they're truly my sheep, then the, then the qualities of me are going to be upon them. There'll be similar qualities. There's going to be unity in that direction. And so, therefore, their heart will reflect what's upon my heart. Then he gives them a list. Says, you can tell the sheep when they're the ones that are just by natural heart and motive saying, there's a need here, a physical need that is about hunger and thirst, and therefore you have compassion and you offer help. Did not Jesus model this himself? Yes, he did. In fact, one of the greatest moments was when he fed 5,000 people and his disciples said, too many. Too many people, too big of a need. Let's move on, send them home. And Jesus says, I'm not done. (laughs) I still have more I want to teach them. Let's feed them. Let's show them compassion. And then Jesus pulls off one of those incredible miracles and feeds them all with such little to start with. Jesus showed compassion. And it says, as a result of, those, of that moment, when he fed them, guess what happened? They were flocking to him so much that, that he disappeared, went on a boat, went to the other side of the lake, and some of them went to find him. They went around the lake. They're like, oh, we heard he went the other side. So what did they do? They went there because something about Jesus had attracted them. He taught them. But he also modeled before them love. And it was enough of, of, of a, an aroma of love from God to them that they followed him. They tried to get on the other side of the lake. They took the long way around to get to where Jesus went so that they could be near him more. How about the next one? When in, in the middle of verse 35 where he says, "...and offering hospitality to a stranger." You see, Jesus' natural compassion was that if somebody came up and that you could tell that they were alone and lonely, it was like, well, of course, just come hang out with me. He modeled that regularly. He didn't let the stranger uh, label keep him from being kind and compassionate. And he modeled that to his disciples. Clothes, when the clothes were needed, or he was actually teaching that, that there is, if you, if you had somebody that, that you owed something to, he said, not only give them your undercoat, give them, give, or your outer coat, give them your undercoat, which was part of their identity. In other words, meet their needs to the fullest extent. And then he said, if a Roman soldier asked you to go a mile, which by law he could do, he could force you to carry all his weaponry and his armor for a mile, just at the drop of a hat. And what did Jesus tell his followers to do? Go a second mile. Now, why would he tell his followers to do that? Because the Romans would expect that when they force you to leave what you were planning to do that day, to drop it and carry their armor, that you're going to grumble, you're going to complain, and you're going to hate it, and you're going to feel like secondary, you're going to feel like a slave. It's, it's, it's embarrassing that they have that kind of authority over you. But when you say, okay, let's go that mile, let's make it two. What does that do to the Roman soldier? It wins their heart. It provokes their heart minimally. Why'd you do that? Why would you ever do that? But again, this is what Jesus did. He didn't just do the minimal. He would go, at, he'd go to the point of generosity and he would do it so that it would affect the heart. 
How about the needs of a sick person? There were many times where the disciples were trying to keep the sick people away because they were coming by droves. But Jesus, again, let them come. And he healed them without limitation. Even those that probably didn't even deserve it. I mean, after all, he healed some lepers and not everybody came back to thank him. You see, Jesus was generous to show his love. And as a result, nobody doubted. Nobody doubted his motives. His motives were on display too consistently to know that there was true, sincere love coming from him. Then you see this idea of those who are in bondage or in prison, that they're being set free. And, not, and you know, there's a literal aspect to that, but there's also a figurative aspect. There are many people that are not in prison right now, the, the, figurative, the, the literal prison, but are literally in prison with their lives. They've been bondage themselves. Perhaps you see it. It's not hard sometimes when you see somebody that's totally gripped with fear and anxiety and issues of life or, or they made so many mistakes that they can't even look at anybody in the eye. They're in prison. Jesus had a habit of releasing whatever was creating bondage in a person's life. And what's interesting is that on Jesus' day, his arrest that happened that was illegal, what did Jesus do? He set a guilty man free and made sure he stayed the course of being the one that was going to be punished. Who is the guilty man? It's Barabbas. Barabbas had been proven guilty. He deserved to be in prison. But Jesus made sure that he was the one that was set free. That Jesus could then provide ultimate freedom to Barabbas. Hmm. So what's upon Jesus' heart? Those that are near Jesus are going to start behaving like Jesus. Whatever his passions are, are going to be his passions. Whatever his favorite team is, that's going to be our favorite team. You get the point? If you draw near to the heart of Jesus, you're going to start looking and behaving like him. And people are going to say, you're not from around here, are you? And then what Peter says will be true. Those who are followers of Jesus Christ will be like aliens and strangers here upon this earth. Because the patterns of behavior of their life is going to look so different from the culture that is around us. But guess what? In the same text where it talks about that we're going to be like aliens and strangers, he says that our lives are going to be so provoking and so different that they're going to say, whatever's in you is the real deal. Whatever's in you is the real deal. That's where he says pagans will actually acknowledge and worship your God as a result of your life because you're living it so well among them. And then he even says, prepare to have an answer. Peter is saying, you're going to get asked why you are the way you are. Why do you have hope when nobody else does? Be prepared. Why is that question coming? Because you're living so different. They're like, you're not from around here. But then you start discovering whoever's near them, whoever's knowing what's the passion of their life, they start seeing, you know what? They're becoming a lot like each other. 
because they have the same template, Jesus Christ. Hmm. I imagine that if there were sports teams in Jesus' day, and he did have a favorite, that there would be 12 wearing the same exact jersey. I also see that when you read the book of Acts, which we just studied, that it's true. Whatever was upon Jesus' heart became upon the hearts of those disciples that followed him. They were compassionate to the poor. They were compassionate to the needy. They stopped and let themselves be interrupted for the sake of another. They released people from prisons, not through the stereotypical forms of legalities, But you can see what happened in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John happens again in the book of Acts, except it's being done by 12 others. So the question then becomes, is your life the aroma of Christ? Or has your love for Jesus and your passion for Jesus waned too much to where if somebody got near you, they wouldn't know what is your greatest passion. Certainly, they wouldn't know that Jesus might be your greatest passion. We want people to be near us. We literally are being told. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5 when he began the Sermon on the Mount? He said, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that can't be hidden. He's basically saying your life is magnetic. It's meant to be something that draws so that you can then point to what is creating the source of that light in your life. Then he goes on to say that when people get so close to you, they taste of you like salt. It says, you are the salt of the earth. And when people taste of something salty, they want more of it. So being the light of the world can only happen if we are near the light of Christ. Being the salt of the earth can only happen if we have been rubbing against something that's very salty in Jesus. And these manners of knowing that Love is truly upon our hearts. And that is the motive that causes us to behave the way we do. Then people will get, they must have been with Jesus. Do you realize when you go and read, when people say they must be Christians, that it's always tied to the acts of compassion and love? Some kind of radical type of living that says, that's not normal. People don't let their lives be intruded like that. Something is different. So ultimately, these five things are true and need, to, and, and need to be embodied if disciple-making is to ever happen in the church. First is this, got to be in love with Jesus all over again. I'm repeating something from last week, but it's so true even now. You got to be in love with Jesus if your life is going to be that light of the world, if your life is going to be that salt of the earth, and your life is going to be that which changes others. And it's just evident of those who are truly sheep. You also become a master, number two, not only loving Jesus first, but you become a master of understanding and knowing what makes Jesus tick. You become 
an expert on the life of Christ. If you love Jesus, then you're going to be drawn to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You're going to read the story of his life. You're going to read how he taught. You're going to read how he behaved. You're going to read what he did. And as a result, those things are going to be embodied in you. And so you become a master of understanding and knowing what makes Jesus tick. And then number three, your love for him causes you to have a vision for life that is filled with compassion and love for others. You, hear me in this, you are not following after Jesus in your life. You don't truly love Jesus unless that vision is yours. It just doesn't even connect. If you say you love Jesus but there is no love emulating from your life, it is a complete disconnect from knowing Jesus. Scripture is so clear on this. And so that's why we're called in Revelation, which I read last week, that if your love is waned, draw close back to his heart. Because out of that, then your love by, and love for him will be so affecting, so transformational for your life, then it will cause others to change. So if there's a prerequisite for disciple making, it is love. A love for Jesus that will then cause your vision for loving others to be seen and evident. And then number four, as a result, both Jesus and those around you know that you are a follower of Christ and a disciple if love for him is evident in your life. And as a result, love for others becomes the emulation of that love for Jesus. And then how disciple making goes is you repeat. You repeat. If people get close to your life and they begin to fall in love with Jesus like you're in love with Jesus, then you help them repeat the same thing and point them to saying, you know what? Jesus never got satisfied with the 99 in the sheep pen. He kept chasing the one that wasn't in there. So should our life be. Not being satisfied that just I am a sheep. So therefore, we let the love of Jesus and what's upon his heart is that other sheep. And so therefore, it becomes upon our heart. So we're like, let the love live out loud. Let it be seen. There are so many ways that we can embody that love and show that love and testify to that love. Compassion to those around us, those moments of serving around us. It is so cool when you see somebody uh, just out of just... Simple compassion, do cool things for others around you. They make a big difference. But sometimes there are bigger things. So we're going to show you a video here of a way that, it's a way that you can begin to show the love of Jesus is to help in times of need. And there is a significant need that we've been talking about the last few weeks about the hurricane devastation that's happened in Texas and in Florida. This video will give you a little bit of a picture and we'll talk about what that means for us as a church. Thank you so much. You're welcome. We had never seen so much water. I think it was something like 60 inches in four days. 
Uh, it's painful. This is my city. I grew up here. Like we have, I think close to like 400,000 homes destroyed. And I would estimate 20, 25% of the families in our church uh, have been directly affected. This is the worst thing any of us have ever seen, even those of us who've lived here for 40 years. What happens when that, when that water comes in is basically everything has to be replaced. If you drive down the streets in our neighborhood, um, it literally looks like um, what I would imagine a war zone to look like, and it just looks like um, people's entire lives being thrown out on their front curb right now. People have lost homes, people have lost uh, their vehicles, people have uh, lost their life savings in response to having to take care of the losses that they have. People in this community don't have flood insurance because we're not in a 500-year floodplain. Well, this is a thousand-year flood, they're saying. When the water falls, the church has to rise. That's your friend. Come on. To be able to touch people's lives in a time of crisis, I hate that this has happened, but this is an incredible opportunity too. And I feel a burden for the church to continue to be beautiful. It, it is pretty awesome how we think of the body of Christ as his hands and feet. And uh, that's never more obvious than when you're sending a group of people and uh, you're sending them in to people they've never met and they're gonna serve those people and help them with practical needs, showing God's love in practical ways. And, uh, and being the body of Christ. And I think over the next several weeks and months, as more and more people come from more and more places, we're gonna see how the body of Christ pulls together. I don't know how we would have done this without a church. When you're in the middle of physical exhaustion of moving things and then um, the mental exhaustion of deciding what to keep and what to throw away and the grieving of what you've lost. And then to have people come in and say, you know, we love you and we're here to help you. Um, it's been tremendous. Oh. I think someone thinking about um, helping would be an incredible blessing. I mean... <laughs> yeah. As crisis response, we're able to come alongside these churches in the the Houston area and the Texas Gulf Coast, they've never gone through anything this extensive and massive. And we bring expertise that we can help to share with them through the recovery stage of putting, you know, gutting a church, putting a church back together, and helping to provide uh, the resources and manpower, tools, supplies, those kinds of things that are necessary in order to put a home or a church or really people's lives back together. Houston is the fourth largest metro in America. Uh, the needs are great. We need help raising a million dollars to get going right from the beginning. We need help with teams coming in. We don't just want you to come, we need you to come. Help us offer the relief and help that's needed here. So one of my hopes uh, through this time is that all of you guys who are in EFCA churches uh, throughout the rest of the world, um, but particularly throughout the rest of the United States, um, would be able to help support us. We are in um, crisis mode, we are in recovery mode, and there is so much help that we still need um, financially, manpower-wise, uh, organizationally, and otherwise. Um, we really do believe that we are better together, and I'm thankful for all the work that we're gonna do together over the next year.
So, for me, I picture people that I worked with at Katrina, remembering how devastated their lives were, remembering their puzzlement when we were telling them we're from Pennsylvania, down in New Orleans, serving and, and, and helping their homes be put back in some kind of shape, and and them not understanding. And I remember this one lady in particular that was a complete antagonist to the gospel. But yet we were doing things for her house. And, and she just, as time went on, she just began to say, I just don't understand why you would do this for me. You know there's no hope for me to ever want what you want. But then as the week would go on, the, the tone changed. And she started realizing that what she was holding on to wasn't going to provide any hope. But what we were offering was very much the essence of hope. And so as a church, we want to respond. I recognize that not all of you can do labor and, and work or be even able to get away, but there is an opportunity to be able to give. There's an opportunity to be able to pray. And there is an opportunity to go. So on November 3 through 11, this church will be sending its first team to Texas. We don't know yet what may happen for Florida. We may be sending a team there as well, but we want to begin a relationship. We have, we have some people that are willing to even place themselves there for an extended time to help mobilize those that we send. So we have some very uh, generous people that have already stepped up with their time and their investment. And we want to just put that out there and say, what, what would you consider? What would you consider? Is it, is it about being able to show the love of God through being able to be able to send money for this team to go, enable them to go? Because some people are willing to go, but they can't afford the $400. Maybe you provide that. Maybe it is that you can go and you go talk to your employer and say, would you be willing to give me some paid time off so I can go? And, and see if they'd be willing to join in the generosity of this. I believe this is an opportunity, just as Pastor West said on that video, that it's an opportunity to show the love of Jesus. Just like we were talking about, this is how disciples are made, by modeling and living out the love of Jesus. So please consider what you might do.